It's the 16th of October, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, the podcast is brought to you by our coverage of virtual 2020 ACR's annual meeting. You give us two hours, we'll give you the meeting. Today, we're going to talk about head-to-head trials. In a head-to-head trial, you need to have a winner and a loser, don't you? Or do you? More on that in a minute. Let's start off with a study about lupus and remission. An interesting study, a retrospective study of almost 260 lupus patients looked at those who achieved a definition of the of low disease activity state called the LL-DAS, the lupus low, di- low disease activity state. In their cohort, they found that uh, over 80% of patients um, were in such a state. And of those, 80% were in remission and 20% had active disease. When they looked at the different components of the LL-DAS, um, they looked at one which was a subjective assessment of activity by the patient called the slack. If you had uh, low disease activity, patient impression of low disease activity uh, of, of six or, or six of less than six, um, that was 56 patients compared to the remaining patients who felt like they were not. Even though they were LL-DAS patients, they had a slack score of six or higher, and they call those discordant. The point being here, if you were a discordant patient, meaning you're an LL-DAS, but the patient didn't think so, what kind of patient was that? Well, in their analysis, such patients had a history of or current active arthritis, fibromyalgia, and taking steroids. That might be um, a reluctant and reticent bunch. Something to be thinking about when your patient doesn't think they're doing as well as you think they're doing. Could it be their arthritis, their fibromyalgia, or that they're on steroids? Uh, juvenile localized scleroderma, morphia, linear disease. Uh, I've learned from our dermatologist at UT Southwestern that this is actually a quite treatable bunch. And there's a lot of successful trials out there, including a lot of success with methotrexate, but a lot of other drugs, including mycophenolate. In this particular study, um, an analysis of, um, oh, it was a good group. I think it was like 40 in each group. Patients either responded to methotrexate and the ones who didn't, went on to mycophenolate. And then they did an analysis of those that were methotrexate refractory and on mycophenolate or those who were methotrexate responsive. Turns out the patients who are on methotrexate and responsive were more likely to have facial linear scleroderma, the coupe de saber and facial linear scleroderma. Kind of interesting because those that needed to be treated with mycophenolate had, another, had other subtypes, including pansclerotic morphia and a mixed um, uh, localized uh, subtype. Uh, again, they both had the same um, degree of disease and length of disease. They both had um, uh, inactivity of more than 90% at nine years. Um, but nonetheless, the, it seems like these different subtypes may respond to drugs differently. Good to know. There's an interesting study that has been going on for years now called the U-STAR study. It's a European um, league study of patients with systemic sclerosis, uh, and they have patients in that who have significant interstitial lung disease. In this cohort of 826 patients, they found that um, SSCILD um, um, was progressive in up to 27% of patients. Um, and progressive was defined as having uh, moderate, 
meaning a greater than 5% change in FEC, uh, or severe um, uh, FEC decline of more than 10% over a 12-month period. Turns out that the patients who are going to have progressive or more aggressive uh, um, uh, SSCILD um, were likely to be male, um, have a higher modified rotten and skin score, and have evidence of reflux and dysphagia. So we do know that more skin score is associated with more severe organ disease. We do know that other organ disease, portends, other organ disease like GI, you can get more lung or more renal. Um, and males, I think that's been seen in several other studies. So uh, again, that's uh, an interesting combination that you might, I mean, there's enough to worry about with scleroderma uh, and ILD is, is a really poor outcome. Uh, it may be the second poorest, maybe the first poorest outcome um, uh, with a close competition with uh, ILD and renal disease. Uh, I found an interesting study that we've sort of talked about in the past about COVID and outcomes in our patients. Um, this is a Spanish study of 123 patients who had a rheumatic disease and developed COVID-19 infection, and that 54 of their patients were hospitalized. Predictors of being admitted and being in the hospital was being um, uh, maybe older, Actually, the, the, the overall, their patients had an average age of uh, almost 70 years, and about 22% of those who were hospitalized died. But again, being hospitalized or not um, older, autoimmune disease more likely to be hospitalized than inflammatory arthritis, um, an odds ratio of 3.55. But turns out DMARD therapy did not distinguish between those who required hospitalization and not. That's been seen in other studies. Um, uh, speaking of interstitial lung disease, uh, uh, Jeff Sparks group at the Brigham uh, has an interesting cohort. They presented this at last year's ACR, I believe, and now it's in print. Um, it's a study of almost 200 patients that uh, they're following with RA and who had chest CTs done. And they found that lung disease is common and it happens regardless of whether you're seropositive or not. Clearly, having RA lung disease imparts a higher risk of morbidity, but certainly an even higher risk of mortality, a five-fold higher risk of mortality if you have uh, RA lung disease. Uh, overall, they found RA lung disease in 28% of patients, 16% of whom had ILD, 14% had uh, bronchiectasis, uh, almost 10% with pleural disease. Again, the thing that goes against all my teaching and what I was taught was that if you had RA lung disease, including ILD, you were just as likely to be seropositive as seronegative. Um, or put the other way, seropositive patients had a, uh, a risk of RA lung disease 29%. Seronegatives had a risk of RA lung disease 28%. It don't matter. RA lung disease can affect in uh, uh, both subgroups, and you shouldn't use seropositivity as uh, a risk factor for lung disease. So, who gets remission and how do you call it and what should you hang your hat on? Of course, rheumatologists say, I know it when I see it. But, you know, there are the criteria. And if you're living a treat-to-target existence, as I do, then um, you should know the criteria and live by uh, an outcome measure. The ACR Boolean criteria on remission is maybe the most stringent. And there's uh, four criteria for that, patient global TJC, SJC, and CRP. An interesting study, a meta-analysis of almost 6,000 patients, 6,000 patients from 11 clinical trials, looked at whether you could accurately define remission and outcomes 
by dropping one of those four, specifically dropping patient global assessment uh, and just going with TJC, SJC, and CRP, more discrete variables. So having all four variables is a 4V definition, three variables dropping the global uh, outcomes was a 3V, three variable outcome, TJC, SJC, and CRP in milligrams per deciliter all being equal to or less than one. They found out the 3V was just as good as the 4V in predicting X-ray outcomes, maybe a little less so with functional outcomes, but still was pretty darn good. So I think that speaks to, again, measure something, stick to it, you'll do well in managing your patients. So uh, an interesting study comes from a Swiss study looking at non-radiographic axial spa patients. As you know, the definition of non-radiographic axial spa are those who meet AXPA criteria for having, infl- having inflammatory back pain and they have the other features of AXPA, but non-radiographic axial spa does not have radiographic evidence of sacroiliitis, and instead you have to confirm that or might confirm that with an MR evidence or an elevated CRP. In this, C- in this Swiss study that compared men and women with non-radiographic axial spa, women had a longer delay in the diagnosis, not unlike that seen in other AXPA, They did have higher disease activity and more anthocytis. They were less likely to be B27. And more worrisome is they had a significantly lower uh, TNF responder rate, meaning if when given a TNF inhibitor, they were about 80% lower in their ability to respond to TNF inhibitors compared to men with non-radiographic axial spa. I find that worrisome. So, So, how about this? Some got to win, some got to lose. Good time, Rune, now has got the news. I should stay away from music. Head-to-head study, someone's got to win, someone's got to lose. The Select Choice study was published this week in the New England Journal. Abitacep head-to-head against upadacitinib in patients, RA patients, moderate severe disease, active disease who had failed at least a TNF inhibitor. It had to be on a background DMARD. Over 600 patients were randomized to one arm or another 12-week outcome. And guess which one wins? You're wrong. Doesn't matter which one you chose. Actually, upadacitinib was the more effective therapy. Um, multiple parameters at 12 weeks showing upadacitinib was better. The primary endpoint was um, the difference in DAS 28 CRP. Also, DASH 28 CRP remission levels of less than 2.6. Upadacitinib was better than abatacept. But wait, there's more. Abatacept was better than upadacitinib when it came to safety. There were more SAEs with upadacitinib than there were with abatacept. 10 versus 5 serious adverse events, including the one death and thromboembolic events and a few other things. Well, that's kind of kind of worrisome. Where else would this be different? Well, interestingly, surprisingly, um, opatacitinib had like 23 uh, instances of liver enzyme elevation, and it was like 10 or 5 with abatacept. Uh, opatacitinib had more grade 3 and 4 lymphopenia or anemia versus the abatacept. So really confusing. They both kind of win. Abatacept wins on the safety outcome. Uh, opatacitinib wins on the efficacy outcome. What are you looking for in your patient who has refractory, TNF refractory, um, active RA? 
I think it's a really interesting exercise. I would like to know what rheumatologists think. You know what? I'm going to do a Twitter poll on this. Look for it. I hope you're on Twitter. Um, a few articles this week about thrombotic risk in RA. A very nice analysis about the thrombotic risk of, for arterial and venous thromboses with tofacitinib. We covered that. Um, gives you all the data from the clinical trial experience. Says that there is an increased risk. It's really small. Really, really small. But it's, you know, again, it's significant. And it's seen in the RA, the psoriasis, the PSA, drug development programs. It looks like it's the same in other registries as well. But I, I want to talk first about the, I guess, the, Swe- the Swedish national study about thrombotic risk in RA being related to, to disease activity. Their study of 46,000 RA patients followed between 2006 and 2018, they showed that there was almost a doubling of the venous thromboembolic risk in RA patients in their popul- in this population-based study. Um, the risk was increased by having activity, such that patients who were in remission had the lowest risk of VTE, 0.5%, whereas those who had uh, DAS 28 ESR of Heidi's activity had a 1.08% increased risk or basically a two-fold increased risk just related to activity. So we know RA imparts risk. We know activity adds to that risk. We know that RA patients in clinical trials have had VTEs, some related to drugs, some not. Um, again, I think you need to be aware of some of these numbers. The risks are about five per thousand, three per thousand in you and me, five per thousand, six per thousand in an RA, um, and then about eight, six to eight per thousand in an RA patient on a JAK inhibitor. Well, or maybe it's a little bit higher when you when you have these activities. So the point is that it's still a low risk, um, but maybe you shouldn't use a JAK inhibitor in someone who already has a high risk, and if they have a prior history of VTE, then you'd want to avoid it. Again, multiple studies have shown, as was shown in our papers this week, that if you have pre-existing VT, pre-existing cardiovascular disease or risk factors for VTE, you're more likely to get it if you're on a JAK inhibitor. Let's end with um, a bit of news we talked about before, but I want to underscore it because it's it's news for our time, and that is COVID transmission from the young to the old. You know, we reported um, two weeks ago, I think, that MMR said that the most common age group being hospitalized right now for COVID was 20 to 29-year-olds. This recent report from MMWR says when there's a spike in the elderly with COVID in a population, you can look back and see that there was a pre-existing, that the spike in a younger age group preceded its appearance in an older age group. This comes from studies of uh, 767 counties in the U.S. that are called hotspots, where the rates are going up and they meet a certain criteria. And these are PCR-confirmed diagnoses. The bottom line here is, of course, that that, um, an increase in the percentage of positive tests in older age groups is likely to result in their being hospitalized, have more severe disease, and possibly death. And it's all being driven by the younger population who are running around without masks and going back to college and, you know, having COVID parties and whatnot. Um, This is one of the reasons why we're about to hit the second wave of COVID. And you think COVID's going to be over by the end of the year or by March of next year, you're sorely wrong. 
it's going to go on for another year or two, and I'm invoking the wisdom of um, our friend Kevin Winthrop, who I heard lecture this past week. He thinks there's too many things that are lining up against us that this is going to continue for some time to come. So be vigilant. Please wear your masks and, um, and take care of yourselves. So who sang that song, Good Time, Charlie's Got the Blues? Shall I do it again? Some gotta win. No, you don't want me to. You don't know who sang that, do you? It was Danny O'Keefe. Who's Danny O'Keefe? He's a one-hit wonder, but boy, that was a good song. Um, Again, Room Now, our coverage, come for the education, stay for our perspectives. You're going to love it. We'll talk next week.